The way that the news media bargaining code aims to solve this problem is by forcing the platforms and the publishers into negotiations around how much the platforms will pay the publishers for their news content. What that situation ultimately is, is multiple companies negotiating over the value of something that has a critical importance for the functioning of democracy. And if those negotiations, you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars get passed around without any real sense of us knowing whether that's being done in the public interest or whether that funding is going through to actual journalism and public interest journalism. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Pretty Good Podcast, Digital Rights in the Asia-Pacific with Engage Media. I am Red. I'm Sarah. So advertising revenue for traditional journalist publications has gone down significantly as more and more people are relying on social media and new media for their news. And one of the solutions to this uh, issue has been proposed in Australia, and it's starting to make the rounds in other places as well. And we think that it's only a matter of time before it gets to Asia. We're talking about the news media bargaining code, which will be the topic of this episode. And our guest for today to help us break down the episode is someone who is not only working with a policy think tank in Australia, but also has done significant work in the Asia Pacific region. And we are thankful that you'll be able to break down how exactly the law, this code is going to work, and more importantly, the implications to the rest of the region. So without further ado, here's our conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Pretty Good Podcast, Digital Rights in the Asia-Pacific with Engage Media. I am Red. I'm Sarah, and today we are joined by Chris Cooper, the Executive Director of Reset Australia, an organization that raises awareness and advocates for better policy, especially around digital rights. He's also the Senior Campaign Director of Purpose, an agency that helps clients harness participation and meaningful social impact. It's a lot of things on Chris's plate. Hey, Chris, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So Chris, before we get to the meat of this episode, tell us a bit more about your work with Reset Australia and with Purpose, especially for our listeners and audiences who may not be as familiar with these organizations. Yeah, for sure. So Reset Australia is set up as a policy think tank and an advocacy organization all in one. And the reason we wanted to do that was because when we look at the issue area of what we call digital threats to democracy, that issue area is really big and there are some really obvious gaps in terms of the kinds of policies that are needed to, um, to solve or start to start to mitigate some of those problems. And so we recognize that there was a need for both the development of good policy, um, but as well as that building on the policy work that does exist, but then really working to translate that policy into public support, and the political cover necessary and the pressure sometimes uh, to get it through to legislation. So at Reset, we look at the that whole process, um, policy development all the way through to trying to get it legislated um, and everything in between. Thank you, Chris. And um, you talked about how digital rights threaten democracy and your um, comments on 
on policymaking as well. One particular policy that's quite controversial is this new media bargaining code in Australia. And although it's uh, started in Australia, it's starting to affect other parts of the world as well. And we think it's only a matter of time before this comes um, to the rest of Asia as well. So can you tell us about this particular issue? Yeah, so the, the news media bargaining code, um, the, the problem that it's attempting to address is the, um, the disproportionate um, uh, or the imbalance of the ad tech market um, and the impact that has on traditional journalism. So it acknowledges that uh, over, over the last decade or two, uh, advertising revenue has been pulled away from our traditional publishers and has moved um, very much to the digital big tech giants. Um, and that's in one in one lens. That's 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 like the evolution of markets. That's the evolution of new technology. But from a democracy perspective, that journalism is really important. And um, while it's ideal that they're not reliant on advertising to begin with, um, the, the 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 problem is is that their model has been reliant on advertising, and that's how they've sustained. Uh, and so this problem has meant that we've had publishers um, and, and traditional media outlets closing in, 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 um, at levels that we've never seen before across the world um, as that advertising revenue has dried up. And so the news media bargaining code was a mechanism, a policy that, that is an attempt to try and readjust that imbalance to bring some of that revenue back to publishers so that they can um, sustain um, that that what is ultimately a public service in, in their journalism. And as you have pointed out in the statement that you, as Reset, uh, made to the Senate inquiry, there are more than just two players in this issue. It's not just big tech platforms such as Facebook and Google and uh, media like News Corp. It's the Australian people as well. And it's important to make sure that um, whatever the results of this uh, bargaining or negotiations that the Australian people are put on top of that. Um, because media tends to gain a lot from this. And I expect that uh, this is the reason why it's only a matter of time before it gets exported to the rest of the world. That's a lot of revenue that they can be making up for. As you mentioned, like ad revenues have been falling very significantly. And uh, big tech, I don't know how much they tend to gain or lose, but let's talk about these three players as we get more clarity on this um, issue. So um, in this um, news media bargaining, like what is at stake for all of these three? Let, let's get more clarity around this. Chris? Yeah, that's a, I think it's a really important piece of it for us is the, uh, the way that this plays out. So I guess there's a couple of bits to go through here. The first piece is that the way that the news media bargaining code aims to solve this, this problem is by forcing the platforms and the publishers into negotiations around uh, how much the platforms will pay the publishers for their news content. Uh, and it doesn't, the code doesn't set out um, the value of, of that content. It just forces those parties into negotiations um, in, in ways that are more fair than have been traditionally um, happened in other parts of the world. Um, so it's, it's world first in the way that it does that. Um, but I think to your, to your point, Red, a really important one is that uh, what that situation ultimately is, is, is two companies 
um, or multiple companies negotiating over the value of something that has uh, critical importance for the functioning of democracy and is really important for the Australian public, but they're obviously not part of that equation necessarily. And so those negotiations play out and you know, millions, tens of millions of dollars get passed around without any real sense of um, us knowing whether that's being done in the, in, in, you know, in the public interest or whether that funding is going through to actual journalism and public interest journalism. Uh, it's one of the sort of, it's one of the flaws of the, of the code in, 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 in our view. But, um, you know, if you sort of take a step back from, and to look at those three parties, um, the, the platforms, yeah, as we mentioned, have been sort of bleeding ad revenue for, for a decade, for a decade or more now. Um, well, yeah, more, yeah, two decades. And, um, and so what they really want to get out of it is, is, is money. You know, they, they want, they want funds coming from those platforms back into their businesses and the code has achieved that and to sort of demonstrate, uh, why this has been such a success for the, for the publishers is that we only we only know the size of those agreements for a couple of agreements most of them are um are still confidential um but one one media publisher one of our largest publishers here in australia uh they got a deal of 30 million dollars um 30 million dollars wow. a year um which is which is huge and that happened just weeks after the french um publishers reached a deal they went through a different mechanism not as effective to try and negotiate with the platforms. And that deal was 30 million euros um, for all of the French publishers, which is about 120, uh, I think, of, of the size that qualified. So, I, I mean, like almost comparable um, in terms of like the, the dollar value, but the difference being that was to one Australian publisher versus all of the French publishers. So in that way, it's been really successful for the publishers. Um, for the platforms, it's it's worth splitting it out into Google and Facebook separately because they both approached it differently, uh, and they both uh, have come out with I think um, faring um, better or worse. Uh, and so Google, you know, Google have always said that they want to support journalism, but they always wanted to do it on their terms. So they want to use the Google News um, Showcase or the, the Google News Initiative as a means to that being the way that they pay journalists. Um, the problem from the kind of public perspective and from the kind of Australian um, uh, democratic perspective is that that's a, another Google product that is being proposed as the solution to uh, the dominance of Google products. It's, it's not really something that sort of levels the playing field, but to Google's credit, they've always shown their willingness and had already um, signed deals with some publishers um, before the news media bargaining code came came through. The code just enables them to uh, just forces their hand to essentially pay more and up the value of that content. Um, whereas Facebook has been dragged kicking and screaming across the line at every part of this process. Um, but they and that's because they have never recognised that they should have to pay. Google have at least come that far to say it's reasonable that we pay some, you know, that we contribute to, to journalism in Australia. Um, so, you know, if you look at kind of the winners and losers of the, of, between these three parties, the publishers absolutely won, at least for now in the short term, the platforms lost, they lost uh, reputation, they, they suffered reputational damage. They had to pay 
way more money than they were probably thinking they could get away with. Um, and but at the end of the day, like the 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 public, where this is who this is meant to be for, ultimately, it's really unclear whether we've won or not. Like our publishers have more money, but there's there's no part of the code that forces the spending or the allocation of that money towards journalism or towards the salaries of journalists. So it, all that money could just go to, you know, the uh, executives bonuses and we, you know, and, and, and have no, you know, greater benefit for, for the Australian public. We just, we just don't know yet. And it's unlikely that we will know. Um, and so that's a real kind of, you know, like um, it, it's a real kind of oversight of the bill, I think, and that it didn't, it didn't, it was wrapped up in this being for the, for the people and for journalism, but nothing actually forced that to happen. Um, when, you know, we really got to remember that these are, these publishers are, are companies, they're for profit companies. And, um, so the way that they spend their money is at their discretion and there's nothing to make them or to incentivize them to actually put it towards anything that's in the public interest. No, I think that's a very interesting point. When you speak of publishers, though, you, I guess you mean more the bigger publishers, at least those, the conglomerates or those who actually have a lot, who have enough to pay for their lawyers and who have a lot of capital to negotiate with these platforms. And a lot of the conversations also surrounded um, talk of what happens then to the smaller news publishers who may not have as much Cloud as you know, News Corp and the other bigger publishers, publishing companies who have, um, who can negotiate. And I wanted to ask you, where does this leave then those smaller publishers who we could say because of their size are more reliant on big tech platforms to spread reach, to connect with their audiences, and so forth. Yeah, that's a that's another really important. Uh, question and a really important piece of uh, like assessing the success of the code, um, which is, you know, on the first hand, it is about whether we see an increase in the number of journalists through the, through the big publishers or through all publishers. That's that one measure of the money actually getting towards uh, the, the work of journalism. Um, but the other one is, is exactly this point, Sarah. It's, uh, you know, where will the smaller publishers land with their negotiations and their deals? Will they get lucrative deals? Um, that's, that's still really unclear. Those negotiations are still ongoing. The, the code ensures that there will be uh, an agreement um, between, those, between those publishers, um, because if they, if they can't find their own agreement, the code will kick in and there will be this arbitration that happens by the government under the code to ensure that a deal is found. Um, whether any of that will be made public and we will ever get a sense of the the value of those deals is, is unknown. But I do think it's the critical measure. Will the smaller publishers um, uh, be, be benefit, like benefit from this code is, is, is the number one measure of whether it's successful or not. I think it's also worth mentioning that we have a very, very saturated, saturated media um, landscape here, uh, about 70% of our media is owned by Murdoch, um, which is is a problem for democracy um, already to start off with. Um, but it is no secret that Murdoch uh, and News Corp had lobbied and applied pressure, or at least signaled support, if you get any kind about it, for this, for this code and the enactment of this code. Um, and so uh, it is, you know, it, 
it is a, it is a really important piece of context to remember all the players here and that's why if you know if if the intention of the code as it's been um, presented from the beginning which is about journalism that like the proof is the proof in that will be the outcome for smaller publishers yes yeah, speaking of the power of these big media conglomerates and companies what what became clearer um, because of this issue is the power of big tech platforms and i want to like discuss a bit the response of both google and facebook to the issue of course google did agree to the lump sum settlement very early on while facebook stood their ground and um, did not publish some news links um, for a certain time and the responses to there were quite in in my opinion exaggerated people thought oh, Facebook is censoring all news as if there's no other way that you can get the news now just because you can't see it on Facebook. So can you tell us a bit about the ramifications of this response of Facebook in particular and uh, the response of the public as well to seeing how powerful like this move of Facebook um, could have been? Yeah, I, the the response of the platforms is, is such an interesting um test case for other governments who are looking at this at this legislation but it's also just really telling of a couple of things um firstly the the size and the power um of these of these platforms was just made very clear uh, their their ability to throw down threats that in google's case they threatened to pull google search entirely from australia is that uh, you know and, and that's what like over 90 percent of australians use for their, their search um that's a that's a huge threat that they threw down in the face of you know quite reasonable government um regulation and legislation um that that in itself should be uh an area of concern um but i think their their power was demonstrated in, in more than just that um that threat over the course of the, the sort of six months or so that the, that the saga of the, of the bargaining code ran, in that time, Google was able to lobby the public and distort the narrative around the code in ways that no other industry has ever dreamed of, in that they ran digital ads, they had pop-ups on Chrome, YouTube, Google Search, every one of their products constantly um, trying to shift opinion and narrative around what the code meant and what it was going to do. Um, and, you know, and that wasn't just about presenting a reasoned um, opposition to it to say this is bad for business. It was, it was threatening in its nature. It was, this is going to break YouTube. It's going to change the YouTube that you love. It's going to break the internet. Um, this is fundamental to the way the internet works. Things that are clearly and distinctly untrue um and and they were able to push that into um into our lives at a level that's just never been seen before and that's alongside their government lobbying might like that is an incredible amount of power and influence that these companies have that goes largely unchecked uh, and so that was a real demonstration the, the one the one thing about google before i get to facebook is that Google are far more sophisticated in the way that they do this. Uh, this, the way that they kind of showed their hand with, with this sort of more aggressive public lobbying was clearly a sign of sort of desperation around this. Um, but they do contribute to lots of community programs. They have a whole suite of initiatives that are 
that are really awesome. Um, they, they, they do incredible work. And, and because of that, they do have favor with governments. You know, most of the MPs we spend time with will say, we hate Facebook and we have problems with Google, but they also do a lot for our community. Uh, and so it's harder to lobby against them. That's because there's, there's a sophistication to the way that they influence. And we should be wary of all of that. Even if it's a good initiative, we should think about what are they trying to achieve with this? Is it really about the public interest or is it about buying favor uh, for when the next regulatory battle comes? Um, and I think that the one last thing on Google was that they also, um, during that period, conducted an experiment which uh, cut off mainstream news results out of the search results for um, one in 10 Australians. And they did this as a, as a sort of normal experiment that they apparently run all the time, although there's no sort of record of that ever happening before. It was clearly a show of like strength um, to sort of muscle the, the outcome of the bill. Again, very aggressive, um, very scary, considering that we you know, rely on Google's services and search itself for our businesses, our, I mean, our, our functioning, our, our connectivity, everything. Um, so that's, you know, so that's scary in its own right. Um, coming to Facebook, they do not have that level of sophistication. Their, their lobbying is much more a kind of sledgehammer approach where from the very beginning of this, of the news media bargaining code, they threatened to pull Facebook um, uh, all like all together, or they, they threatened to pull news altogether, and then they obviously followed through on that like months later, um, but did it in such a clumsy way that it's unclear whether they were either they either a misjudged completely how much social license they have uh, and the impact that that would have, or um, they were just like technical technically. Um, uh, incapable of, of doing what they did and they sort of they mucked it up from a technical capacity I mean I think it's the first one but essentially what they did as you as I think probably most of the listeners well know was that they uh, they tried to remove all news from Facebook in Australia but they also took with it government health pages community pages like charities like our biggest charities our smallest charities community pages it just they just kind of obliterated civil society's ability to function for a week, um, which obviously bought them no favors. And, and I think all it really did was spark a conversation here around our total reliance on Facebook for the way that we function and communicate. And there's now this real appetite to, to, to disconnect from that, from that dependency. Um, and so, I mean, those, 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 those responses are, from both um, companies was, was quite extreme and, and, and very aggressive, uh, but certainly they were not aimed at the Australian government alone. They were chiefly aimed at other governments to show that uh, if you attempt to do similar legislation, we, you know, it's gonna be hard for you, it's gonna be messy for you. Uh, and I think our sort, of, um, our sort of conclusion on all of that was that both companies misjudged how much social license they have, and they they really lost the narrative battle around the code by doing by taking such drastic action. You know, if Facebook had had just maybe removed news, like just the mainstream news and, and, and nothing else, they would have been a much firmer ground to make an argument to say we think this regulation is unfair, um, and this is you know we're a business and we're able to operate in this way. That would have been, I think, still not operating in the public interest and would have been 
um, a problem anyway, but it would have been much more reasonable. Um, in, but instead, they, they showed their hand of how, uh, how aggressive they are, how, how little interest they have in the, in, in, in the public, in the Australian public. And um, uh, yeah, and so uh, I, I think our conversations with other governments who we know are now looking at, new, at, at instituting their own news media bargaining code or some variation of it, um, are very much not deterred by by what happened here now, and I think you know within within months we will see uh, similar codes pop up in, in other countries. It's interesting to see, as you mentioned, how Google and Facebook will calibrate their defense on the attacks against them in these news media bargaining fronts in different countries. But this is part of Facebook and Google damage control, right? It's part of this tech clash narrative that uh, big tech is evil and there's, they're doing a lot of harm against the world, disinformation and, and so on. So Google and Facebook, uh, as you have already mentioned, are actually also strong supporters of traditional journalism in that they fund a lot of initiatives of mainstream journalists. So can you speak a bit about this um, relationship between those two giants, like this big media or big journalism and big tech, and how I think there could be maybe a conflict of interest because one of the the most powerful platforms to expose the evils of Google and Facebook and other big tech is mainstream journalism, but maybe these um, problematic relationships between them prevent journalists from truly going at it. Um, what do you think? Yeah, I think the the relationship between the publishers and the platforms has been very entwined. And I think that what we've seen over the last couple of years is the publishers realizing that they, that they need to peel off that and, and detach from that. Um, it's, I think through our work, we've seen publishers are always very eager to um, publish work that we're doing. That's very critical of, um, uh, of, of the platforms. Um, and I think that's because they are, you know, they, they really are competitors, um, not in terms of their core business, but in terms of their revenue stream. And so I think that, um, you know, there will be, there will be a continuation of the, of the, the sort of battle going on um, between them. But I think, I think what this does, just to kind of bring it back out to your point before around, you know, what, what does this really mean for the public? And what does this mean for a democracy that's seeing the, this tension and these, these, this battle play out between these, these massive companies, um, which is really about where thinking about where does um, the sort of monopolistic power of the platforms um, begin and end and how, and how far are we happy to let that kind of ride? So Google's Google and Facebook support of traditional journalism through granting or through being dragged across their market dominance. The Google, the Google initiative, news initiative is exactly that. It, it, it means that we're gonna to continue to rely on those platforms to get our news. Um, and, and you know, and, and there's an inherent tension there because Google's products are, are great, right? And so we, um, we don't sort of mind that, but what this shows is that um, like, any, like any industry where there's there's uh, the uprising you know out of out of brand new innovation the creation of entirely new industries and then societies catch up and we say well actually you you operating um at this scale without any 
uh, like guardrails to how you how you function has actually all of these detrimental effects, whether they're environmental impacts or social impacts or impacts for the market and, and competition. And then we we institute regulation to rein that power in. This is this is like we this is the course. This is how you know capitalism and democracy function together. Or you know, and and it's certainly not not perfect and it doesn't always result in the in the best outcomes for the public but that is the process and that that is the fight that we're in the middle of right now and i and for us i think that we need to really think strongly about how powerful we want these companies to be even if you like your google products even if you like facebook um do we want them to have more power are they accountable for the harms that that um that that manifest um either unintentionally from people weaponizing their platforms um, or from the you know the the fact that there probably hasn't been the the thinking that was needed in the design of some of these platforms because they've manifested the these harms that have come out um, as a result of the design features and the business model that sits in the, underneath like the, the entire ecosystem is a problem and operating largely unregulated and so for me, I think we should be very cynical about any attempt to you know, support journalism because it will always be on their terms and it will always be to benefit their business model, even if there's some public good to come from it. And we need to think about how we peel back some of that power and position it and situate it back with the people and within accountable governments. Thank you for that take. Just for transparency, I am a former journalist. And so a lot of that public good that you're saying uh, strikes me and is important to me, but also I definitely understand the take that you have always have to be critical, which is well what journalism should be about in the first place. Before we move on to the different, to how this will affect other countries, I just want to go back full circle. We already talked about how the publish, how in the short term, at least the publishers have won, the tech platforms have lost some public favor. But what about, then? now let's go to the public. You were talking about in the few weeks that this was all playing out, the Facebook in particular, in particular lost some favor when they decided to pull out those pages and instead just forced the Australian public to really think about their reliance on these big tech platforms. Could you expound on that sentiment of the public? And do you really think that people are thinking about the reliance now or is it just in the heat of the moment and then a few weeks months from now it'll just be business as usual uh it's a good question you're testing how much of a cynic i am (laughs) but also i think it's but also i think it's about how much of um like how difficult the problem actually is so uh, i think that the first time that we as uh, like a purpose really dealt with um, these kind of challenges was with the, um, the stop hate for profit um, campaign, uh, the boycott of Facebook advertising in the US um, last year, based off, for those who don't know, it was uh, in retaliation to the proliferation of hate speech, particularly ra- racism on Facebook. And there was a huge number of um, advertisers that boycotted um, Facebook uh, for a month. Um, and we can talk about, again, like the, the scale of Facebook and the, the little dent that that did in their bottom line, but it was a very clear symbol of, um, of the, the attitudes and the way that people feel about Facebook 
uh, you know, and, and their complicity in, in those kind of problems. Um, but we looked at that and, and, you know, and looked at our campaigns across, across the globe, which, you know, it's more than, at that point, I think it was more than 100 countries we had campaigns running. And every single one, um, I think with very few exceptions, relied on Facebook advertising in one way or another to reach people, to reach our audiences. And so we looked at, okay, well, like, let's, let's, let's get more creative around the way that we think about reaching audiences. And so our shift has really been to look at um, how do we, how do we no longer be a Facebook first um, ment like mentality to our work? Because I think that's where we all land. It's Facebook first because it's the easiest and it's in some ways the cheapest. Um, and so uh, and what that's forced us to do is to every time we're, we're, we're building a campaign or designing, a, a, you know, some, some outreach, we, we really do think about what are the other channels and mediums that we can support um, and, and use to, to, reach, to reach audiences rather than just rely on Facebook. But it's difficult. I mean, we still, we still do. You know, we still use it in our work at Reset Australia because it's where our supporters are. Um, but increasingly, you know, we get, we get people feeding back to us to say like, why are you even on Facebook? You should, you should get off it and reach us somewhere else. Um, and so we do that as well, but, but the, 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 the truth of it is that, you know, for depending on which demographic you're looking at, most people are there and it's the easiest way to get there. And so, you know, I think it's been tough for, for businesses and, and, and the civil, um, civil society in Australia post the news media bargaining code debacle because they don't really have a lot of options. Um, it's really difficult to go through other, other platforms. And, and obviously like the other digital platforms, some of them are just as bad as others. Um, and so it is a, it is a real, it is a real struggle. Um, and I think that work is, is ongoing. Um, I do of course worry that we're just going to fold back into business as usual. Um, but I think there is at least, an awareness uh, of that dependency and and a, a real attitude towards to breaking it, um, but you know, but people need the people need the the options, and I think that's really a signal for, for you know for like the startup world and those 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 companies that are looking at building, um, you know, who are innovating around solutions and alternatives that I think is going to be really exciting in the next couple of years because. There's a real opportunity there, um, but you know, for the for the small for the small charity who had their page shut down and they lost a week's worth of um, fundraising potential, like what options do they have? It's quite it's it's quite difficult for them. So you spoke about this business model, which is definitely surveillance capitalism, the attention economy, and capitalism in general. It dictates that certain things um, will more likely happen. So while that uh, is the prevailing business model, I think that change will be hard, like products being developed um, can only go a certain amount. And even this news bargaining, I feel, is a very surface layer addressing of the issue and not really like taking to the root of the matter, which is this advertising-based surveillance business model. And I'm sure you've thought a lot about the, these issues. So more than just the news bargaining code. Um, can you tell us about your ideal solution to this general problem of surveillance, capitalism, attention economy, and so on? Like, How do you think in the future we can more meaningfully change 
um, so that um, we we do more than just band-aid solutions and uh, have something that's more meaningful and um, systemic. Yeah, so I think what there is a real need for is is um, more innovation. And the problem with innovation in this space at the moment is that Facebook and Google, well, to be fair, Google kind of cre- really led the steering of the internet model being an advertising model. Um, that was that was a decision that was made at some point that has meant that that is um, that is a model that we rely on um, most most heavily. And there's not, I mean, there's there's different models out there, but nothing at scale. And I think part of the part of the, the reason for that is because of the scale of these companies. Um, their their dominance means that they're not really innovating that much anymore. The best innovation happens elsewhere. But that just gets kind of bought up by these companies and then folded into their into their system, and so it's a stifling. When you have monopolies, you you do they stifle innovation, and so uh, you know one lens on the problem is how do you reduce the profitability and the the market power of those monopolies in order to create more space and incentivize more innovation, both from within those companies, but also from outside. That's that's I think really the goal, and so. The way, in our view, to do that is through a few different means. Uh, one is that if you look at the the business model that these that these businesses are built on, you're right. It's surveillance capitalism. So it's the extraction of personal data, and it's the harvesting of attention um, through that um, uh, through the collection of that data, in order to you know like hold people's attention and focus to collect uh, more data yet. And to serve ads, that's a very simplified version of it. But the the kind of core ingredient there is 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 obviously the personal the personal data, and that is I think if you compare it to any other industry that's ever it's ever um, come into existence, no industry has ever really had to not pay anything for that raw material. Um, I mean, there's even even you know during like the oil boom, you know, like that, like, like there's, there's parallels in some ways to that being a sort of almost near free resource, but it was never free. Um, and this is data that's, you know, this resource is constantly created and they have complete dominance over that. There's, there's no value attached to it other than what they extract from it. Um, and so for you as an individual, you're giving up data that is, creating and helping to generate immense profits for, for these companies. Um, and the, the arrangement obviously is that you, you get a free product out of it, but that's, it's, it's obviously not free because you are giving up something and you've had no control in negotiating that trade, right? You, you sort of, a, we're all down at the, the user end, the, the downstream of that entire process. And, um, and so I think we really need to change the way that we think about data. We need to get smarter in the ways that we talk about what kind of, what, you know, the different types of data, um, the way that it's collected should matter, the way that it's used should change how, we, um, how it's considered and how it's valued. But ultimately individuals need more control over how their data is collected, monetized and used. And that would really kind of pull the rug out from under these companies. Um, and so that is, you know, data rights is, is one way to do that. Um, I think that's the end goal is that we should all have, you know, we should all have ownership of our data as of right. 
I think the pathway to getting there is maybe not to jump straight to that. It's to look at how do we um, help both the both people to um, understand the value of their data and to start to demand that kind of right. Because I think there's not that appreciation at the moment. I think it's we're all pretty flippant in how much we we give up to these companies. And yeah, sure. I mean, I, I get a curated playlist and uh, it knows what I what I want, and that's really convenient, and we love that. But I think that there is a need to raise awareness around the harms that come from that and the value that should be redistributed in ways that are accountable. Um, and that all comes with you having more control. So I think that's a, that's a key piece. I, I think that you're never going to solve the bigger problems unless you talk about data rights. But then I think those, those band-aid solutions that you mentioned, Red, I think there's a whole bunch of those band-aids that are actually really important in order to pare back um, the way both to mitigate the harms because some of those harms are, are, are terrible and and serious and particularly impact more marginalized communities you know if you look at the, the scale of who's who's being hurt here it's not the white cis men of the world it's the it's um vulnerable communities it's it's women it's ethnic groups it's it's um, racial groups that's where the harm is and we need to we need to fix those like now we can't let the market shift slowly over time. So those band-aids are, are, are critical. And for us, what we really push for as, as a first step to those interventions is more transparency around the way that these platforms operate, the way that they curate content, the way that their algorithms function. Um, and that doesn't mean giving up the kind of, you know, the secret, the business secrets of what's inside the algorithms. It's, it's really just about trans, it's, it's about accountability and that comes with transparency. And that's so that we can pro properly diagnose the problems and create policies that are actually effective. Because at the moment, the arrangement is, is pretty much that we see a social harm and then we kind of reverse engineer what's happened and we back up into these opaque companies. Um, and so we know that the problem's happening in the way that they operate, in the way that they harvest attention or the way that they um, curate content. And we have no way to, you know, we're expected to then develop policies that can address those problems, even though we can't see what's on the other side of the wall. And so we need to start with that transparency because it builds accountability. Um, and that's, and so that's, I think, the first step. Um, all of that needs to happen within a new approach to regulation of these kind of companies. Like the, the part of the problem is that these new rules and regulations fall between consumer watchdogs, privacy um, commissioners, um, different, different regulators who have a different piece of the puzzle, but they're not prepared or connected or have the capacity or the resources to really take on the scale of this. So we need to, um, we need to resource it all properly and create new kind of regulatory frameworks, which is happening in the EU and the UK. Canada is looking at, it, uh, um, at new regulatory frameworks as well. That all needs to happen. So it's just a lot to get done, um, which is, you know, and there's no silver bullet. So it's a very unsexy answer for you, Red. But I think that's, um, that's, that's what we need to do. It's going to be hard work. No, there really are no silver bullets and simple solutions. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here in the first place. And doing a podcast promoting digital rights and trying to get it to audiences. Um, I want to, speaking of our audiences, I want to circle back then to our core, this podcast's core audience, which is the Asia Pacific 
So there are people who have been definitely monitoring what is happening, especially because the news media bargaining code has set a precedent that other governments can then uh, follow and adapt to their in their respective countries. So what kind of precedents do you think this code has set, especially for countries in Asia? We know that Canada is thinking of adapting something similar, but uh, Australia is part of the Asia-Pacific and other governments as well, especially in Asia where governments are now more authoritarian or at, uh, with, you know, strong, strong men and uh, those authoritarian policies, they... The mood then is, of course, to they may see this as a way, okay, we can then control two problems, you know, big tech and publishers who both can be critical of, you know, these governments and these policies. Yeah, I think it's a, a, great, a great question. And it really highlights uh, the difference in approach that's needed. Uh, and that's partly because you know, Australia is fortunate to have very strong democratic institutions. Uh, and those institutions um, are, yeah, are not perfect, but there's, we have independent regulators, we have um, the functions that enable us to have, um, to institute something like a news media bargaining code and, and have a, a certain level of trust that's gonna play out and it's gonna work in the way that it's designed to, um, even if it's, even if, even with all, with its flaws, um, we, we, we have the regulatory institutions to be able to go down that route. I think when you're talking about a country that, that you know, is um, a dictatorship, uh, that, like, that's not really, it's less of an option um, because there's no trust in that. And, and I think that the challenge for um, Asia Pacific is, is an entirely different one in terms of the approach that's needed. Uh, I think that um, what I've what I've been like fortunate enough to see part of throughout the region is yeah an incredible amount of like awesome monitoring work going on a lot of work around how to build out um, better privacy for individuals um, and doing this in ways in, you know and, and innovating new businesses and new models that are like Asia owned rather than relying on companies from elsewhere in the world and I think that's all really exciting um, because I think it needs it needs that it needs new approaches. Um, but it needs to happen in ways that aren't going to rely on, on governments. Um, and I think that's, I just think it's going to be a really tricky, um, challenge. Um, but, but one that, um, you know, I think, I think is already, we're already seeing the signs of that, of that happening. So we've spoken about the legislation that needs to happen, what um, activists and advocates who are already familiar with digital rights, data ownership, and so on. But for the average um, civil society person, what do you think, um, in light of all this, they should be doing going forward? And also considering all of the, the band-aids that you have mentioned already. So how should they be consuming their media? How should they be getting their news and so on what do you um, give us advice to the uh, listeners of our podcast who want to make a positive difference but don't have the influence to do legislation and things like this yeah i think i think the parallels here with some parts of climate change are really important in that you know if we're gonna if we're gonna stop the climate crisis there are a bunch of things that you as an individual can do um, but really the solutions lie with governments and industry. That's, that's what needs to change. And we should do things in our own personal lives that, um, 
that that contribute to the solutions absolutely we should do those things but we shouldn't be left thinking that that's going to solve the problems the problem exists with industry and that's where that's where we need to um, focus our attention um, but say in the same way that you know with climate change we should be prioritizing climate as the issue we vote for um, this I think is an issue area that we should be um, pushing up our priority list in terms of when we do vote because I think that's you know that's that's the uh, for those living in, in democracies that's the you know the, one of the most effective things you can do but there are of course um, I think with this issue area particularly around the impact of journalism um, much more that we can do and that is it's supporting public interest journalism it's supporting local journalism uh, doing that both with our engagement online because your click-throughs of those sites you know feed their advertising um, which is useful but also if you can afford to you know subscribe to local media that's um, uh, that's critical really it's, it's probably the most effective thing you can do um, and I, I also think that there's other there's other ways that you can diminish the influence and the power of the big platforms in your life as well. There's a bunch of different um, security and privacy tools that you can use um, to minimize their ability to, to surveil to surveil you and feed them feed the machines. Um, but uh, and, and that's all stuff that we should all we should all be doing more and more of because it all helps to undermine that power. But at the you know where the buck stops is supporting public interest journalism and supporting local journalism is i think like the most effective thing um, that individuals can do thank you for that answer chris i agree that though your two points about supporting local journalism and also reconsidering how you use and interact with big tech platforms is important and something that our i hope our audiences really take to heart after listening to this episode uh chris thanks for joining us and we again we are still watching what's going to happen the code is still very fresh and we'll only really see how this impacts the bigger picture moving forward so it's something we should all be monitoring thanks for joining us chris thanks so much for having me it's been a pleasure And so that was a very interesting conversation with Chris. And it's very nuanced, which I think is the kind of conversations we need to be having and not just blatantly supporting or demoralizing one um, facet of the news industry and big tech over the other. And so there's, Chris has given us a lot to think about. Me in particular, I've already mentioned in the podcast that I was a former journalist. And so... I will always, always have a special place in my heart and the fight and the need to fight for journalism as public good. But I do acknowledge and appreciate what Chris said about how while journalism is seen as public good, it should also mean does not mean, sorry, that we should not be critical of what these um, news media publishers are putting out and just assuming that whatever revenue they get from big tech platforms will be used towards producing more of the good work that journalism should be doing. And I feel that as audiences, we should be critical of what news is being given to us and what is being reported and not just take it at face value. Not only that, we should also be critical of uh, how the how this news is being shared on social media and what news we even are seeing on our feeds. It's a very nuanced conversation 
and perhaps something we can tackle in a future episode. But just being critical of that and being constantly critical, not just while the issue is fresh, but also reevaluating how we com- consume media and use tech platforms. I think that's something that we really need to be mindful of. What about you, Red? I like how Chris compared the issue, or rather the solution to the issue, as the one on climate change. So increasing the urgency that we put on this particular topic of um, surveillance capitalism and the attention economy, I agree with that because definitely there are real-world consequences that we are seeing happening and we don't know how bad it can even become if we don't address it um, soon. Like We could further entrench ourselves in this particular a framework that definitely has bad consequences, um, some worse for others, as Chris has mentioned, especially um, for minorities. But I'm also looking at how the solution to climate change, like often we blame people for their individual actions, not using straws that are biodegradable and and things like this. Um, the, the discussion now is shifting towards blaming the big actors on this, the the corporations that uh, really have a lot of impact on the earth that dwarf the the effects that a single individual can have. And I think that's the same when it comes to this particular topic. Like we can start using mainstream media more and um, new media or social media less. We can be more mindful as individuals and hopefully that can have like this um, critical mass at some point. But I, I still believe that like in climate change, the big impacts will have to come from um, legislation happening that really addresses in a very nuanced way uh, the, the situation. Um, but uh, of course, that doesn't say that we should be cynics and just give up because if we do not as civil society support uh, the environment for such legislation to happen, then it certainly um, will not. Um, Yes, uh, quite a good conversation, Sarah. I, I definitely agree with you. Thanks, Red. And yeah, I mean, we can't give up. That's why we are doing our best to spread the word and to mainstream this talk about digital rights in the region. And so if you want to learn more about the different aspects of digital rights in the region, different countries' experiences, and other issues, just head on over to engagemedia.org slash podcast, where you can not only listen, but also watch the podcast. If not on engagemedia.org, we are also available wherever you can, wherever you listen to your podcast. So thank you very much for listening to this episode. See you in the next one. Bye.